Friends, it's great to be with you this morning. An honor to be serving you this morning in the preaching and the, and the outlining of the scriptures. Mike Woodruff and I are, are friends, and I consider it an honor to be serving at this time in our church, in your church's uh, history and, and struggle. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're looking at verses 12 through 25. I'll give you a moment to find it. Romans 8, 12 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, for in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we know how hard it is to wait, but we wait for it patiently. It's really a joy to be with you on this beautiful morning. And I can remember several years ago when my wife and I and our children were living in North Carolina, we, we suddenly had this craving for some good Italian food. And you say, well, what's a Jamaican doing with Italian food? Well, I don't know, over the years I developed this love for good Italian food. We were living, we had lived in Northeast Indiana for about 10 years and had acquired that cuisine, that love for that cuisine. And so here we are in the South and one of those Friday nights we said, where are we going to find some good Italian food? So we drove around, found this restaurant. And this was in an era, and I know when I say this it sounds like I'm from the prehistoric age, but this was before the invention of Yelp. And when I say Yelp, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so you use it too. 
Well, we could have used Yelp that day, that evening, because when we drove into the parking lot of this restaurant, we noticed that there weren't many cars there. And you know how sometimes God sends you, sends you these massive clues, and if you just pay attention to the clues, you can avoid yourself a world of trouble. Well, we drove into the parking lot, and there weren't many cars there, and that was just a clue we ignored. We walked into the restaurant, and of course, there weren't many people there. And in looking back, we say that was another clue, but we ignored it. We sat down, and we ordered our meal, and we waited quite a while. You know, and maybe that was the final clue God was saying. You know, that flashing light, get out, get out, get out. But we ignored it. And they finally brought the food, and I had ordered lasagna. And when my lasagna came, I I started feeling really disappointed because it was kind of swimming in some water. And yeah, that's kind of what I said too. But I cut it open, and when I tasted it, it was still partially cold. And you know, that told me right away what was going on. So I pushed the lasagna aside, and fortunately, they couldn't go wrong on the bread. So we enjoyed the bread. We paid the bill. We walked out, and my wife and I said, you know what? We're never going back to that place. And uh, about a month or so after, we were driving by, and we noticed there was a sign that said closed. And that didn't surprise us that this business, this restaurant was out of business. But then a few weeks later, we're driving by, and there is this sign on the wall that said under new management, under new management. And of course, we were tempted, but we didn't yield. We were curious. I wonder what changed, but we didn't go back. And we, to this day, we don't know whether that restaurant made it. But there's something about that phrase, right? That phrase, under new management, because it suggests a new system. It suggests a new way of being. When you see those words, under new management, it suggests a departure from from the past, and it it suggests this, this hope that something new, something better is going on or is coming. Now, when I read Romans 8, if I had my way, I would put in the subheading of my Bible, under new management. Because if you're familiar with the book of Romans, all 16 chapters of it, you remember that Paul opens up the book, and he opens the book on a rather dour note, and he says, look, something is wrong. Something is wrong here, folks. And it's not just with the Jewish race, but there is something wrong even with the Gentile race. There is something that's totally wrong with the the whole world. In fact, he says in Romans chapter 1 that what's wrong with the world is that we've got our priorities mixed up. Instead of worshiping the creator who made it all, we're worshiping the creation. We're worshiping the things that God made. And we're taking those things and we are transmuting them into idols and into gods and we're worshiping them. And then he goes on into chapter 2. And by the time you get to chapter 3, he's saying, look, no one is doing anything that is good. We're all liars. We're all seeking after what's wrong. And, and the, the book has this rather, this rather negative note that something's wrong with us. Something is skewed, not just with us, but even in creation, he says. But then he says this, that God has instituted this new management. God has done something to heal creation, to heal humanity, and he's done it in two principal ways. And really, that's what I want to talk with you about just briefly this morning. In what way is God already healing this world? And Paul suggests, in Romans chapter 8 at least, that the two principal ways in which God is righting what's wrong with us and with the world, he's doing it through the means of adoption 
and he's doing it through the means of redemption. And if you look at Romans 8 and verse 1, if you still have your Bibles open, you look at the very first verse, he says, look, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The very next verse says, because the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Try to imagine the people who first received this letter when they heard these words for the first time, that they can actually identify, and maybe we can do the same thing too, of a time in our lives when we were not in Christ. And they can remember what it felt like to be under condemnation, under God's wrath. Try to imagine how excited they were when they heard that something new had happened, that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That little phrase, in Christ Jesus, is such a powerful word because I think embedded in that phrase is this new system of management that God has instituted. And you say, well, how did this happen? Paul tells us in the very next verse, because the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. This is the good news. This is this new reality that God has now established. And then you jump down to verse 12. You look at verse 12. Paul then says, so then, and I'm inserting these words, because we're under new management, how are we to live? So he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, we are debtors. We are obligated, he says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds or the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is what he's talking about. This new management that has been instituted by Jesus our Lord and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we're then as his people being called into a new way of life, something we couldn't do by ourselves, something that it's impossible for us to live this new life without this new work of God through the Holy Spirit. So we're under the management of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that, though? You know, we don't walk around talking about life in the flesh, necessarily, or life in the spirit. We, people would look at us and wonder, what are you talking about? And I'm sure when people read this, they're questioning themselves. What does he mean by, by life in the flesh and life in the spirit? Well, one of the best ways I know how to illustrate this is to actually read another section of one of Paul's letters. This time he wrote to a, a church that was in this province of Galatia, another Roman province where he wrote this letter. And if you turn again to Galatians 5, starting with verse 16, if you can fi find Galatians 5, go right ahead and turn there and maybe hold your finger on the Romans passage because we're going to go back there. But just look for a moment with me at Galatians 5 because this will help us fully understand what he means by this life in the flesh and life in the spirit. Starting with verse 15, he says, Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. You know, whenever I read this passage, you know the picture that comes to my mind? And you've seen the cartoon image of this where this person is standing Huge question sign over their head, and on one shoulder is this good angel, 
and on the other sh shoulder is this evil angel, and they're both speaking into this person's ear, and the person is wondering, you know, which way do I go? Paul seems to be describing here this struggle that we have as human beings, that we, we want to do the things that are right, but there's this struggle that's going on, this intense struggle that every single Christian is facing, the struggle between what God wants and what our selfish desires want. And whenever we, whenever we give in to the flesh, of course, we suffer. Let's just look briefly at what he means by the deeds of the flesh. Look at verse 19 of Galatians 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. You can't hide them. And he lists them. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and then he says things like these. It's not even an exhaustive list. And I'm warning you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And maybe that's what it means by when we live this way, we die. We, we cut ourselves off from the hope of life in the kingdom of God. Now let me just go on record with you this morning that I am struggling as a human being. That when I look at this list, I see my stuff in here. I want you to know that. I'm not immune. And when I look at a wonderful audience like this this morning, my guess is that you might see your stuff in here too. If you're really honest, that as human beings, we're all struggling. Maybe that's the thing that links us together as human beings. I, I come from Jamaica. My skin color is different from yours. I, I have a political view that you might find different from what you have. I like watching the Steelers play, and I think they're going to win the Super Bowl next this year. And, and some of you are giving me the thumbs down, and some of you are diehard Bears fans. I mean, there are so many things about us that's different, right? And yet the thing that links us together as human beings many times is that we, we share this common finitude, this common finiteness, and we struggle as human beings. But there's a paradox here. Because even though the scriptures are telling us that we're under this new system of management through Jesus and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, as I said to you, we are struggling. In fact, Paul is a very honest man. If you go back one chapter to Romans 7, he says, look, I'm going to be honest with you. There are things that I know I should be doing that I'm not doing. And the thing that I don't want to do, that is what I find myself, myself doing. And then later on, he says in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this death? And so the question is, how is God helping us then? How is God restoring us? And I want to suggest to you that one of the ways God is restoring us is through the ministry and the work of adoption. And Paul reminds us, and now we're back in Romans 8. Look at verse 14. Paul reminds us what this new management looks like. He says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That you and I have been adopted into God's family. How do we know, though, that we're children of God? Paul says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. You and I are adopted. We've been chosen by God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that relationship with God, we now have the privilege of calling on Almighty God in the most tender name, 
with the most intimate name, and it's the name Abba. The Abba, the Father. And as God's children, when we pray, we can pray to God as our Heavenly Father. We don't have to be afraid. We don't fall back into fear. We pray. We call to God. We know that God loves us. We know that Almighty God is with us in all of our struggles. And I find that to be particularly good news because, you see, I blow it every single day. There's always something that I'm not doing. There is always some attitude that I shouldn't be displaying. There's always some behavior that I'm engaged in that is not pleasing to Almighty God. And I'm so grateful this morning that if my relationship with God was predicated on my good behavior, I would be an outcast. If my relationship with God was predicated on my feelings, then I would be a mess. And Paul is telling us that objectively, Almighty God has adopted us. And we are his sons and his daughters. Look at verse 16. Paul says, God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. This is so important. So important. Because it's not based on how we feel. It's not based on because we say so. God says, you are mine. I don't know the struggle that you're going through right now, but I would imagine that you are indeed struggling with something. God is saying to us this morning that when you go through these deep waters, I'm with you. As you go through these fires, I'm with you. You're mine. I'm not going to let you go. Now, this sounds great. Until you look at verses 17 and 18, Paul introduces a little word that I wish we could eradicate from our vocabulary. I wish we could excise that word from our dictionaries. It's that little word suffer or suffering. The Greek word there is the word sympasto. The prefix sim means that which is shared in company with or together with. In other words, Paul is saying that because we are in Christ, we're going to suffer with Christ. And I hope you knew that. I hope I'm not discouraging anyone this morning. That by virtue of our relationship with Christ, as we walk with Christ, we're going to suffer with him. But Paul tells us that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, and you and I also are going to be glorified with him. So we are going to suffer. But Jesus has adopted us. Jesus has claimed us as his very own. And in that way, he is enabling us to go through the struggles that we're going through. There's another way in which God is fixing us and fixing the world, and it's in verses 19 through 25, and it's through redemption. Look again at verses 19 through 25. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration or futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. I don't need to tell you this. You already know that creation is struggling, that you and I live on a fallen planet. The Bible tells us that over and over again. When I think about the month of July, I have to say that I find the month of July to have been one of the grimmest month, months that I can remember in a long time. 
like you and like millions of people and billions of people around the world, I was so shocked when I heard the news that a, a, a commercial jet flying from one section of the planet to another was shot out of the sky. And that plane was filled with close to 300 people, little boys and little girls and whole families and people going on vacation and people going for family reunions, brilliant scientists who were involved in finding a cure for AIDS. I mean, all these people who were just going about their business, living their lives, and someone on the ground with a surface-to-air missile didn't flinch, shot that plane out of the sky, bodies and debris falling to the earth. I think about the death toll that is constantly rising while you and I are, are sleeping in our beds at night. We wake up each morning to hear that more and more bodies, more and more lives are being dismembered and killed in the Gaza and the bombs that are going back and forth between Israel and the Gaza and the children and the families and the buildings and the hatred and the violence that is going on between those two warring groups, and you pray that peace would come between Israel and Palestine. I think about a few weekends ago where less than 24 hours, 22 people were shot in the city of Chicago. I, I don't know about you, but I just find that, I find that hard to absorb. I think about that little girl who was at a sleepover, that 11-year-old girl at a sleepover. She was there with her friends making s'mores. And a bullet came crashing through the window and lodged in her head. And the little girl died. And friends, I'm here to tell you this is not how it was supposed to be. That when Almighty God created you and me, when Almighty God created this world, God said it was good. God said it was very good. So what happened? And you read Genesis 3 and you get some clarity around what's going wrong. That humanity has rebelled against God's goodwill. And creation now, Paul says, is groaning and it's decaying. And he is right that God subjected it to futility. And you read Genesis 3, and it's very clear that God talks about all these different things that will happen to us and will happen to creation as part of the consequences of human rebellion. And the sense that you get from reading these scriptures is that we are part of the problem. That what's wrong with the world is what's wrong with people like me. What's wrong with the world is what's wrong with us. That we have not handled this delicate world well. That we have not been good stewards of what God has given to us. And so the earth's resources are shrinking. And population is just growing. 7.2 or 3 billion and rising daily. Our delicate e ecosystems are threatened by by pollution, as our population grows, our resources are strained, and you get the picture that creation is groaning and struggling, and we have droughts in one part of the world, we have floods and too much rain in another part of the world, we have tornadoes and we have earthquakes and the tsunamis and the cyclones, and, and, and the world is just groaning and struggling. He says in verses 22 and 24, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. And isn't that an interesting phrase he uses there? In labor pains until now. And not only the creation, he says, but we ourselves, we groan inwardly 
as we wait for the adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Is there any hope, though? Is this how it's always going to be? Will there be any relief from the struggles, the struggles within us, the struggles of a hurting planet? Is there any relief? And that's the good news of Romans 8. Paul says there is. Scripture says there is. We are waiting for final adoption. We are waiting for final redemption of our bodies. Paul wants us to know that the struggles that you and I are going through, they're not going to last forever. That God plans to redeem us. God plans to redeem the struggling creation uh, from its sin. That God plans to redeem it from its groaning and its travailing. And this is why Paul says again in verse 18, and I hope you will hold on to verse 18. I hope you will mark this and take it home with you. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed in us. You know, last weekend, something happened to me that I had never, in all my almost 28 years as a pastor, I had never experienced this before, where I had, a f- I had three funerals on one weekend. You know, that's just how things turned out that day. Three funerals. And the last service that I I had was a gravesite service for a dear Christian man in our church. And I stood in that cemetery. I stood by the casket. And I looked in the faces of his relatives, his his, his wife, his, his daughter, his grandkids. And you could just see the pain all over their faces as they're trying to make sense of of how suddenly this man left us. I was with him at the hospital on a Wednesday, and he kept telling me, I'm going home on Friday. And then I got the call on Friday night that he suddenly died. And I stood there, and I'm trying to find the words. What am I going to say to to this family? And instead of trying to give them my words, I decided to go to, I think, the most encouraging words from Revelation 21, And this is what I read to the family, and I want to read this for you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May I read that again? God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Now, whenever I read that passage, I'm always a little nervous because I believe it with all my heart. But I want to clarify here that this is not escapist theology. This is not the in the sweet by and by kind of theology. 
where we're just going to hunker down. We're going to build these bunkers somewhere. We're going to get all our canned goods and put it in this cave somewhere. And we're just going to wait for the world to come to an end. This is not what this is teaching us. This is not the view that, that we should just hang on till the end comes. No. What this passage is giving us is hope. This passage is giving us a glimpse that God has a plan for us. And God has a plan for creation, and yes, it is unseen. And that is the criticism that we often hear against Christianity. People say, oh, you have a pie-in-the-sky view of things. You have this view of heaven, and it has no earthly good. You know, that kind of thinking. That Christians are weak. Christians don't have a brain. That Christians are always looking for a crutch. No, this is not a crutch. This is hope. This is a glimpse of hope. And we have many, many glimpses of hope. I think about that passage in Matthew where the teenage girl was found to be with child. She conceived a child by the Holy Spirit. And when they asked, when the father asked, what do we call this child? The angel said, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's a glimpse of hope. When Jesus began his ministry, he gave many glimpses of hope that I am doing something to fix this world. He was healing the sick. He was feeding the hungry. He was opening the eyes of the blind. He was delivering those who were under the oppression of demons. He was doing, as the Bible says, good. He was going around doing good through the power of the Holy Spirit. The biggest glimpse of hope that Jesus gives to us is when they crucified him and they buried him. And the demonic realm thought they had won. But it was only for three days. And on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. And he said to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again. We get these glimpses of hope, and we wait. We wait. So what are we to do then as we live in what I call this in-between time, where stuff is happening where people are dying, where prayers are not being answered, when life doesn't make sense, what do we do in this time? Let me just suggest to you two things before I close. Number one, I think you and I should live in the kind of hope that we find in verse 24. We need hope. For in hope, Paul says, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? No one. But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Friends, I want to say to you this morning, don't, don't, don't lose that hope. Now, of course, when I speak of hope, I'm not talking about some human kind of aspiration where you say, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope the Cubs win the World Series. And we've been hoping for that, right? It's been over 100 years. We're trying to keep hope alive. I'm not talking about that kind of hope. I'm talking about the kind of hope that is rooted in the very character of God. I'm talking about the kind of hope that is based on the promises of Almighty God. And I don't know you, and you don't know me, but my sense is, as human beings, we're struggling. Some of us are struggling with our marriage, you know. We're struggling with, with being a parent. Some of us are, are struggling with trying to find a job or trying to hold on to a job. Some of us are struggling with, with poor health, some of us have heard the diagnosis that it's cancer. And when these calamities come at us, 
You know, I think about my brother-in-law who sent me a text yesterday. And it was just a cascade of problems, physical problems that he's going through, marital problems that he's going through. He lost his job over the weekend. They laid him off. And it's just this cascade of problems that have come upon him. When these problems come at us, the tendency is we want to wave a white flag. And we just say, look, I quit. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to give up. But here's what hope does for us. Hope keeps us stable. Hope keeps us looking with faith and with belief that Almighty God is never going to leave us. He's going to be with us to the end, that Jesus is with us in the midst of that struggle. But here's the second thing I would urge you to do. Live in hope, but also then be a healer and be a helper. You know, earlier this year, we lost our 17-year-old nephew. And it was a very tragic way in which we lost him. And when we got the news, you know, when, when, when you hear bad news, unexpected, un unexpected news, it has a way of just setting you back on your heels. And that's how we felt. But there was a lady in our church who exhibited what I think is the healing and the help that we all need when life hits us really hard. This woman came up to my wife and I, and she said, you know, when I heard what happened to you guys, I just thought about this book, and she handed us a book, and she didn't, she didn't have to do it. She didn't have to give us that book, but she did. And it's a book written by Philip Yancey. It came out this year. The book is called The Question That Never Goes Away, Why? And Yancey, in the book, makes it very clear that while you and I are waiting for final redemption, we must remember, we must remember that we are commissioned by God to be agents of healing and hope. Some people say, well, but, but I'm having a rough time. How am I going to help someone else? Well, actually, it's when we are helping others, when we're serving others, that we ourselves are being helped. Listen to what he said very quickly at the end here. He says, he talks about a research that a university was doing in trying to understand pain. They were researching pain. And they got these volunteers to come in, and they wanted to see how long these individuals could keep their feet in buckets of freezing water. And here's what the researchers observed. They observed that when a companion was allowed in the room, the volunteer could endure the cold twice as long as those who suffered alone. And so the researchers deduced that the presence of another caring person doubles the amount of pain a person can endure. Every survey shows that a person who is connected with a caring community heals faster and heals better. And this is what the church is, right? When the church is at its best, when the church is working the way it should work, the church is able to provide healing and hope. And to me, that's the best apologetic for being part of a church. And I pity those individuals who try to be the Marlboro man and try to go it alone and the pull themselves up by the bootstraps kind of person who says, oh, that's okay. Oh, I can't. it's okay. It's no big deal. I, I, I can make it. I can make it on my own. That's the biggest lie of all. The researchers show that when you're part of a caring community, you're able to endure. You're able to sustain, you're able to go on. And I hope that you here at Christ Church in Highland Park, that you are availing yourself of all that this community has to offer, that you're not trying to be a solo Christian, that you are seeking out small groups, that you are seeking out those within the community who can listen to you and talk with you and pray with you and be empathetic with you 
Because here's what I found out. So often I think, wow, I don't want anyone to know what's happening in my life. And what I'm finding out is that people are going through a lot of the same things that I'm struggling with. We're all in the same boat. And God has knit us together to hold each other and to support each other. So don't go it alone. Let me close by just reading again what I think is one of the most profound passages, and it's right there in Romans 8 and verse 28. Paul says, For we know that all things work together for good. Let me say that again. We know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Friends, you and I are struggling. Creation is struggling. We're going to fail. We're going to suffer. But Paul seems to be saying to us this morning that all things, the stuff that you're going through, it's going to work together. And we don't know how. We serve this awesome God who has adopted us, this awesome God who is redeeming us, and somehow God has this recipe where he's going to take the threads, the tangle, the mess, what seems irredeemable. God is somehow taking it and using it and causing it to work for our good and for God's glory. I'm standing before you this morning and telling you that your struggles are never wasted. It's never wasted. God is going to use those struggles to bring glory to himself. I hope you believe that. I encourage you to believe that this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, hear the prayers that we now make in this room. Lord, we can't hide from you. We look at each other from the outside and we make the mistake of thinking that all is well. But you know the, the struggles that we all endure. Lord, I ask that you will cause life together in this community to be enriched, that this would be a place of healing and hope, of honesty. Lord, thank you that you are at work in the world. It's unseen sometimes. But Lord, we know that you are on the throne and you are making all things new, so we wait in hope. We give our lives to you again. And we pray that you will send us out from here. Even as we come to this communion table, we see another glimpse that you are at work. And you would send us out from here to be your agents of healing and your agents of hope. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.